This is hard evidence of something supernatural. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is January 19th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hello, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? Not bad. How are you? <laughs> Why? Why did that deserve a, a laugh, Jeff? Hi, Sarah. How's it going? <laughs> I don't know. This is funny. Go. I'm sorry. This is the this is the intro. Uh, that voice that you just heard was Jeff Foster out in L.A. Hey, Jeff. Whoa, what is happening? <laughs> this is Hi. great. I'm going to take the morning off. You guys just go. Well, well, we could just turn this into a panic city. Good morning, Neil. The Mets have already fired their GM. Oh, no. Yeah, marking the second straight off season in which it's... they fired either a manager or GM uh, without the season even having started yet. So that's yeah. Nice. Yeah. So maybe they should work on their vetting. Yeah, it does seem people. like that's an issue. Hmm. It does seem like maybe. an issue. Think about it. I do feel like everyone, every organization, just ask up top. Have you ever texted someone a picture that will make us fire you soon? Just tell me right fire now. Fire you literally within <laughs> weeks. Just tell us up front. Um, also, if you could stop being a garbage human being, that would be helpful too. It's basically like, how similar are you to Brett Favre? Right, yeah. yeah. If, if the answer is very similar... We're not hiring you. For anyone who doesn't know or doesn't care about the Mets, rightly, uh, the Mets have fired general manager Jared Porter for sending some explicit images to a female reporter. And that's that. That's very Mets-like. It is interesting, yet again. So this the reporter who was not named has left journalism. And, you know, obviously this incident was part of that. It wasn't the whole part, according to the ESPN story, but part of it. Um, so, dudes, stop. Just stop. Just stop doing that. I, I can't figure out if the Mets are, like, with a new owner, if they're just the same, they're going to do the same things that they've always done and make the same, like, weird mistakes both with uh, personnel and with players. I, I can't I can't decide if this incident is indicative of the Mets or not. I think it is. I mean, I think that the this is early proof that just the franchise is cursed. It was mm. not just the Wilpons. It's literally just the the maybe the ground underneath City Field is a ancient burial site or something. This oh, is hard evidence of something supernatural. Right, Sarah, a curse, a cursing. I think money will solve a lot of Mets problems, though. It seems to always at least help. Solves a lot of problems all over, doesn't it? I know. They'll just spend their way out of it. Uh, in in happier news than that, guys, I think I have myself a hockey team. What? Ooh. Yeah. So I you got a lot of- that Devil's Bruins game? And... <laughs> I, I, I did not. I aggressively <laughs> did not. Um, I got a lot of uh, great feedback from our listeners. Our listeners came through, um, which I appreciated. Um, and only through Twitter. None of them emailed me, which I also appreciated. Um, we were overlooking such an obvious team that is perfect for me. Because it's brand new and doesn't exist yet, really. The Kraken. Oh, the Kraken. Yeah, the Kraken. But a, that doesn't, that doesn't great help name. you this doesn't year. Help this year yeah. No, it does help me this year because it means I, doesn't, I don't have to actually watch hockey this year. I just get ready don't, for don't next year. Don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. It's perfect for me. It really is perfect. So Seattle Kraken, that's going to be my team. Do you have any connection to Seattle? 
You okay with Seattle? You're. You know, I haven't actually been to Seattle. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, which is wild. My, yeah. Well, you could go there for a Kraken game. Exactly. I'll go there. Now for you a have a reason. Game. Yes. So that's it's all very exciting. Seattle, you're my team. Thanks, and thank you to all the listeners who, who, who helped me out there. That was a great call. All right. On today's show, we'll talk about the results of the NFL divisional round and the legacy of Drew Brees, who may have played his last game in, in Sunday's loss to Tom Brady and the Bucks. We'll also talk about James Harden's debut with the Brooklyn Nets and how the trade changes the NBA landscape this season. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The divisional round in the NFL playoffs saw the Cleveland Browns scare the Kansas City Chiefs and their fans for a minute there, though Andy Reid was unmoved. The Green Bay Packers looked dominant in their win over the Los Angeles Rams, and the Buffalo Bills won a defensive battle against the Baltimore Ravens. There was really only one upset. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers capitalized on three interceptions, and the postseason hopes of the New Orleans Saints were ended early again. It was by no means the first unexpected home loss in the playoffs for the Saints in the past few years, but it may well have been the last NFL game that quarterback Drew Brees will ever play. Even if it wasn't on ESPN's first take, Max Kellerman reflected on how this game and the tail end of Brees' career affects his legacy as a great quarterback. Brees' legacy is he's the most accurate passer ever, right? Like he's an amazingly accurate passer. But guys, the fact of the matter is too often – particularly over the last half decade, on teams that, Stephen A., for how long were you saying things like Drew Brees has to overcome this Saints defense and they're not giving him enough help on that side of the ball, but then they got him help on that side of the ball, and they got him playmakers. And whatever imperfections on the Saints, you know, there were, hard to complain. They were the, uh, one of the best balanced teams over the last three, four, five years. In football, how much more could you ask for? He couldn't get it done in the playoffs. How often was he the guy over the last half decade, a big chunk of his career toward the end, if this was his last game, who you could point to and say, with better quarterback play, they could have won that game. Were they snake bit? Yes. Bad officiating, bad luck, all that's true. But also, let's be honest, bad Drew Brees, certainly not playing up to his standards otherwise. And when you think about it, was he ever the best quarterback in the league? He never won an MVP. For a lot of his career, it was Brady and Peyton in whatever order you wanted to put him back then, and then Rodgers. And then after Peyton left, you have an influx of new quarterbacks like Mahomes. And when you talk about the best, you always add Breeze's name in at the end as a courtesy almost. But the fact is he's never in the running. Say, yeah, that guy's the best in the business. So let's... Let's break down what Kellerman says there. Neil, has Drew Brees been the liability on the Saints in the past few years? They only won that one Super Bowl. Is that on him? I mean, I don't know that he has been the liability. I don't think you can say that about a guy who has the numbers that he has, who has the efficiency, and whose team's offense has consistently been one of the best I mean we talk about quarterback being the most important position it is true it's a great point that they you know the narrative was always that he he was being dragged down by his defense and supporting cast and so forth and they went out and they got him a defense they got him a supporting cast and they were unable to really turn that into championships and I think that that will be a um a big part of his legacy uh, down the stretch of his career. But to, I think it's a little much to say that he was a liability um, and that, you know, the rest of the team would have won if 
I don't know, Taysom Hill had been their quarterback or something like that. <sighs> well, I don't know about <laughs> that. You know, he wasn't both the current answer or the future. Uh, I just don't think, you know, the offense was very effective. Um, you know, we, we've all seen the stats about not throwing the ball more than 20 yards down the field. And I, you just, I mean, the NFL is just not built currently where you can do that and succeed, especially if you make mistakes. I mean, you almost have to kind of play flawless and, you know, they are capable of playing more or less flawless and winning. And it works very well against bad teams for sure. But um, once things go awry, they're not built to come back. If you're in an obvious passing situation, your quarterback can't throw the ball downfield. Even if you have Michael Thomas, who, by the way, was not playing great, and Alvin Kamara, who, who was playing better, um, it's not going to help you that much, especially against a talented defense like the Bucks have. And, and you know, I look at that Jarrett Cook fumble, and, and once that happened, you know, they were very much in control of that game. And, they, and when they're in control of a game, they can run the ball, and Breeze can do some things. You know, he's got more options. The defense isn't just, you know, pinning its ears ears back and, and coming after him. Um, so once that fumble happened, I think, you know, we all saw, you know, it was kind of immediately downhill and quickly downhill. From yeah, that. it was interesting to me how fast that game changed because it did really seem like oh the saints are gonna the saints are gonna walk away with this and then it just it very suddenly changed but but i i do want to i like aside from just this year yes i mean it was pretty clear that breeze was was reaching the end of his career his his arm just wasn't there totally but over the past several years the saints have been very good and have lost in the playoffs in kind of fluky ways you know, those those things could have gone the other way very easily. And then we have a different conversation, right? I mean, and those are we really going to blame Breeze for those kind of very normal fluky endings to seasons? Is that really Breeze's fault? You know, they're in these positions to lose in these heartbreaking ways. You know, a really good team is not in a position where a pass interference call at the end is going to cost them you know, a, a trip to the Super Bowl or, you know, a trip to the NFC Championship game in, in the case of the, the Diggs play. But I think, you know, it, it is interesting that you end up in a position to have these letdowns in the postseason because you play well during the regular season and Breeze has had really great regular season numbers. I mean, even this year, his quarterback rating was 106.4. Uh, he was one of the best statistical passers when he played, and he only started 12 games in the NFL. So I, there's probably something to what you were saying earlier, Jeff, about this idea of what works against most NFL teams and most NFL defenses, and then what works against the types of defenses that you have to face in the playoffs and the situations you might find yourself in in the playoffs. And those may not be the same thing. So it's it's kind of a complicated question, and, and it does cut to the issue of, like, what does it take to win in the playoffs versus what it takes to win a random game against the Atlanta Falcons in Week 13 or whatever. Uh, and, and maybe Breeze, at this stage of his career, can win that random regular season game, but then once you get into a hole against a good defense in the playoffs, he's not necessarily the guy that you need. You know, Let's remember the way the Saints normally were for a big chunk of Breeze's career in New Orleans, which was we were saying things like, does Breeze really have to go out there and score 45 points every week? 
to get this team to win because the defense can't stop anyone. You know, for a while, the problem was on the other side of the field. For a long time in Sean Payton's tenure, I mean, they had some of the worst defenses in NFL history, and they were still winning games with Drew Brees. Um, the last couple years very much reminds me of, of that last year we saw with Peyton Manning in Denver, where it um, where he won the Super Bowl, but it was just clear, you know, like he he, he wasn't the same, and, and he could only do so much. By the way, Ben Roethlisberger pretty much looks fits this, uh, falls into this bucket right now anyway, also. Um, but that, that, that Denver team won the Super Bowl. You can win with a, t- a quarterback like that, but you have to play, you know, lights out defense and you have to, you know, keep the game within your control, run the ball and, and not make mistakes. And that, like that brand of football can win. So this, this Saints team could have won, but if you're, if you're giving the, if you're fumbling, you're calling back punt returns on holdings and, and doing these kind of things, losing, missing these opportunities, you are going to lose. Yeah. And you talk about, you know, what things were like before this current incarnation of the Saints and how we talked about the Saints needing to score. How about the state of the Saints as a franchise before Breeze arrived you know they had made the playoffs once in the previous 13 years uh before he came there and they had only made the playoffs a total of five times in their whole history and he immediately takes them to the conference championship uh in 2006 big part of sort of their post-Katrina revival for that whole franchise so I think there's something to be said about be you know his place in NFL history beyond just the stats and everything like that but like as really the face of this franchise that it's a very stark difference between what the saints were before he got there and what the saints have been afterward. And like, we never would have been talking about the saints as a perennial contender or have these expectations that they would be able to win these games or be in these games uh, without Drew Brees. Well, that's, that's, you know, something that, that, that Max Kellerman said there, like, bothered me because he said that Drew Brees' name was included in lists of the best ever as a courtesy. Um, and I think I think you're absolutely right, Neil, that that he turned around a franchise, which, like, can't be. that That is important. That is important in the NFL, and it's important as we build teams in the NFL. You can't just, like, well, that doesn't matter after the fact. Like, that's silly. But but also, Brees has the most career passing yards ever right now. I mean, it's been back and forth with, with Tom Brady. I assume that Brady will will overtake him again. But still, he is the most prolific passer in NFL history. Does he really not belong in the conversation of all-time great quarterbacks? Yeah, it's a really weird level of disrespect that I don't necessarily know where it's coming from. Because, like, would we say oh, we're only including Dan Marino in a conversation out of courtesy. And and Dan Marino didn't win any Super Bowls. Are, are, would we say that, you know, we're, we're only including, I don't know, uh, Aaron Rodgers in a conversation. Aaron Rodgers only has one Super Bowl. Maybe that changes this year, but you know, uh, out of out of courtesy, probably not. I mean, I I I wonder what the difference is there. Is it just that Aaron Rodgers more fits the the model of the big arm, you know, kind of guy that can make all the throws, whereas Drew Brees, much more known for his accuracy, as Kellerman said, and and that that's like a different. You know, undersized guy, also one of the first guys of that type to kind of um, 
thrive in the NFL, that it's just sort of biased against that that type of quarterback that still sort of lives on where we think we, we look at his numbers and we're like, not saying that he's a system quarterback, but somehow are suspicious that a guy that's like small and doesn't have a huge arm and thrives off of accuracy could ever truly be one of the greatest of all time. Is that where that comes from? Cause otherwise I don't get it. Yeah. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. And it's like, I don't, it doesn't matter what your, what your preconceived thought of was of him. This is what he did. Like he has had this prolific career and it, and it there, I mean, and it did, he did win a Super Bowl. That That's the other thing that is, is interesting to me. Like Super Bowls clearly changed the way we think about quarterbacks and not winning a Super Bowl you know, sticks with the quarterback for forever. But now is now one Super Bowl is also not enough. Really? <laughs> I mean, it's funny. You know, I, it's, I call this uh, Atlanta Braves syndrome where they they win one World Series with this, you know, amazing collection of like generational pitching and then never win another World Series. And despite, you know, going to the playoffs, you know, constantly. I wonder how much of it has to do with Brady because I think Brady being a contemporary of Breeze, they went into the NFL, I think uh, one year apart um, and they both became starters in 2001 that like it, it hangs over Breeze and his legacy so much where it's almost like this older brother syndrome where like anything that Breeze can claim uh, except for that total passing yard thing. But I, I, like you said, Sarah, it does seem like if Brady plays next year and he has given all indications that he's going to try to, that he would break that also. Uh, that that anything that Breeze could put on the table and say, you know, this is my credential for being, you know, in the inner circle of all-time great quarterbacks, Brady can be like, oh, yeah, well, here's my six rings or whatever it is, um, you know, and, and <laughs> dump those on the table and just dwarf anything um, Breeze can put up there. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. Brady, Brady is a problem for every quarterback who has been, you know, the the legacy of every quarterback right now, because he also, I mean, he won a lot of Super Bowls, meaning that a lot of other quarterbacks didn't win many Super Bowls. I mean, Rodgers only has the one. Now maybe that will change this year, but does that does his if he only ever gets one? Super Bowl do we does that change the way we ultimately think about him when he's done I mean I think you know he's probably going to win the MVP this year so that's a little different that but that like never having won the MVP is is interesting too that Breeze never you know these conversations because like then you look at Eli Manning who won two Super Bowls and what do people say about Eli Manning compared to Drew Breeze I mean he's he's mostly talked at I mean, at least maybe there's people out there praising Eli Manning left and right. But, you know, you don't hear their names are Neil Payne. (laughs) (laughs) The guy gets very little credit. You know, he's he's barely considered even a good quarterback by most people, I think, let alone an all time great in the Hall of Famer who won two Super Bowls in dramatic fashion. It's just so selective. I think this cuts the core of the silliness of all of these arguments that that engage in like ring counting and trying to parse out like who gets credit for what because there's no internal consistency in these arguments. And it just basically comes down to like, I like this guy. Yeah. I'm going to twist the facts to to boost his you know, reputation. I don't like this other guy. I'm going to also, with no logical consistency, twist the facts against him. And those are our arguments. And that's sports arguments. It's almost like it's hard to win a Super Bowl. And it's hard yes. to build the championship team. It's almost like that that is true. 
All right. Well, let's look to, instead of uh, the past of Drew Brees, the future of our postseason survivor pool. So everything continues to go according to plan. My plan. As I have four points after the Chiefs (laughs) beat the Browns. Neil has two points with the Packers beating the Rams. Jeff has some phantom points for picking the favorite teams of both our former and current producers, but zero actual points because first the Seahawks and then the Saints lost. Yeah, I think I'm I'm mathematically eliminated. So I don't know. Uh, I don't think that's true. You could win this week and Neil could lose, I think. So you're still in it. You're still in it. Don't give up. <laughs> yeah, in fairness, Jeff, you did call that you would be betrayed by the Saints after picking the Bucks in the regular season. So this, you knew this was would happen, and you did it anyway. So I guess I mean, that. yeah, yeah, that was obvious. <laughs> also, that you know, we call them upset, but it was it was basically a coin flip game anyway. <laughs> and and yet and yet you picked it. You had the first pick last week. Just wanted to throw that out there. Oh, that's just don't <laughs> tell me that. <laughs> But that's embarrassing. We have reached the conference title games. Neil, you have the first pick. Who are you taking this week? Ooh, yeah, this is uh, really, really getting difficult. And Patrick Mahomes is concussion, not a concussion, like whatever it is that he's having to go through the protocols for um, certainly complicates it more. <sighs> yeah, this is. Real tough, especially since I can't take the Packers. This is part of Sarah's master plan, I realized. I am going to take, you know what? I'm going to be chaotic. I'm going to take the Buffalo Bills. Wow. All right. Okay. I'm going to take the Green Bay Packers. All right, Jeff. <laughs> so what What happens next week if the Super Bowl is Packers-Chiefs and, Sarah, you, you don't have anyone to pick? I can still pick one of them. I only get one point instead of two. All right. So, All right. Yeah. Don't worry. I've got it all all under control. All right. <laughs> so who are you? You should have taken your your advice, Jeff, and escalated the points each round. Well, yeah. we could have done yeah, that. Exactly. That would have changed the strategy of the game, of course. But um yes, Oh, I'm we, sure. We yeah. certainly could have well, done I'm gonna that. I I'm gonna take the Chiefs. All right. Well, sorry, sorry, Chiefs fans. <laughs> I guess Sorry, Chiefs fans. Uh, next year should be good, should be back. Um <laughs> Chad Henney, Michigan legend, won't be involved in the conversation. You'll be fine. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll see how those games turn out. (laughs) Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment to talk about the newest member of the Brooklyn Nets. Last Wednesday, James Harden finally got what he wanted, a trade away from the Houston Rockets to the Brooklyn Nets. It was actually a four-team trade with the Indiana Pacers and Cleveland Cavaliers also getting in on the exchange. Houston got three players, headlined by Karis LeVert, whom Houston then sent to Indiana for Victor Oladipo, four first-round picks and four other pick swaps with Jared Allen and Torian Prince on the move to Cleveland in the trade. Side note on Karis LeVert, a physical as part of the trade, revealed a small mass on his kidney. He'll likely undergo surgery to remove it, but the trade meant that it was found much earlier than it otherwise may have been. Once the blockbuster trade had gone through, Harden's opening night for the Nets was also a blockbuster event. He racked up 32 points, 14 assists, 12 rebounds, and 4 steals against the Magic, becoming the first player in NBA history to post a 30-point triple-double in his debut for a new team. He followed that up on Monday night with 34 points, 12 assists, and 6 rebounds against the Bucks. 
Hardin's move to New York definitely alters the dynamic in the East. And on the Jalen and Jacoby show, Jalen Rose was excited by just how much this new Nets team is set to change things. The NBA that I was born to, that I played so long, needed this so very much. You got the East Coast villain. You got the West Coast superhero and LeBron James. And I was sitting back watching the Derek Coleman, Kenny Anderson throwback jerseys. And I was also watching the Bucks play. Mm. And I saw Giannis go one for 10 from the free throw line. And you know what I was thinking? KD's winning the East. I love Kevin it. Durant's Come to the dark the side. East. Come to the dark side, Mr. Rose. Because you've been I, talking I, about I, the Bucks all season. Come to the dark side. You, you, now, you know how much I love Giannis and Middleton and Drew Holiday. And, I, and I've tried to hold out hope, I know Jacoby, you have. I know that they you were going to win the East. But now James Harden is playing with Kevin Durant and Kyrie, and Kyrie Irving. Let me tell you what. A, let me what a, Let me tell you guys would have been more fair at the park if James Harden would have got traded to the East to play with Joel Embiid. So now you got those two. You got KD and Kyrie. You have Jalen and Tatum. That would be more fair. But now uh-huh. you put Harden on the Nets. Oh, man, it's unfair, man. We are delighted to be joined by 538 senior sports writer Chris Herring to help us break down Harden's trade and his first few days in Brooklyn. How are you, Chris? I'm doing okay, guys. How are you? Great. Great to have you. So do you agree with Jalen Rose that based on Harden's performance in that Orlando game, the Nets are set to win the East? I don't know about that, but I do know that – even just in the first week and maybe, you know, it's because it's so new and kind of the novelty of it. uh, You know, I follow mostly NBA people. It is just like lighting up my timeline anytime the Nets play now. And, um, you know, I think I saw something about uh, the Yes Network's ratings about, you know, just how, you know, James Harden's debut was two or three times the, you know, the normal number of fans that are watching the game. Which is kind of stunning to think about the fact that they have Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving playing together for the first time. And then on top of that, you know, they're doubling the ratings when they add somebody else. And so uh, for all the people that say that James Harden doesn't drive ratings and that James Harden is boring to watch, uh, you know, it, it's anytime you have someone that has led the league in scoring for three or four years in a row and you put him on what people perceive to be a contender. Uh, it makes things interesting. And I do think this is kind of a transitional year, at least in the East a little bit. You know, we've seen now that Milwaukee has not come out of the East and, you know, that it's just kind of there for the taking. You've got Boston there. You've got Toronto there. Maybe Miami will kind of come back and do what they did last year. But there's obviously another spot there to be had. And, you know, lo and behold, they played Milwaukee last night and came out with a win with, with a new team and not even having Kyrie Irving out there. And so it, it's going to be interesting. Is this the team I think is going to win the whole thing? No, but um, <laughs> but I would not want to be anywhere near them in a conference finals or in a finals with all the offense that they have. Yeah, and if you if you just look at our our model, uh, we wrote about this, Chris, at the time. Like we were a little surprised by this, but the Nets went from having I think it was like a two percent chance of winning the championship to now they're at sixteen percent, uh, and they are the um, the favorite in the model to win the East by a few percentage points over Milwaukee. So to that extent. 
I think Jalen is right that they have become, uh, if not the outright favorites, they're certainly now sort of like co-favorites. And we even saw that, you know, it gave a little bit extra um, emphasis to that that game against the Bucks, And to see them win it and to see Harden play really well uh, in that, I think, underscored even without Kyrie, I mean, it's just, you know, you, you have uh, Harden doing that. You have Kevin Durant hitting the shot at the end, and it really was like, okay, maybe now we can kind of get some, like, real rivalries around this Nets team and maybe with the Bucks and, and sort of heat things up uh, in a season where uh, I know we've talked about this um, off-air, Chris, that it seems like there's so so many blowouts and so much, you know, sort of teams kind of packing it in if they get down early compared with a usual season that it might be nice just to inject like a little bit of fire and a little bit of rivalry into things uh, at this stage of the season too. Yeah. I mean, this is a weird season and I I had this conversation um, with Zach Lowe at some point last week where I, you know, in my mind, I I said for weeks now, um, you know, dating back well before the trade, Man, I really hope that the Nets don't trade for Harden. Not and not because I, you know, I don't want to see the Nets take off or anything like that. But they just had so much offense to begin with, and kind of in my opinion, that I thought it would make the team a little bit too top heavy. Um, not so much because they would have this great offense, but because they don't have much defense. Um, what I find interesting about it now, though, <laughs> and looking at it, is that. I, I wasn't taking into account what our model would say about the trade. And we, you know, we've had this conversation before. Our model has always loved the Rockets, I think, in large part because of James Harden. And so it doesn't stun me as much when I actually stop and think about it, about what the model thinks, because this might have been the most analytical player they could have taken and plugged him into a team that was already pretty good already very good it's kind of interesting that Kyrie isn't there yet and that it's like it's like easing Harden into the super team like okay first you're gonna play with Durant and then you'll get Kyrie too what I mean what does this team what could they do when Kyrie is there I mean it feels like they can score more than they're scoring now and they're scoring a lot like, do you, do you see that as a possibility, Chris? <laughs> I saw a really funny meme yesterday. And, and, and I think a lot of people are starting to have this take or this question of Kyrie Irving kind of forcing a three-person group hug, um, you know, from the outside <laughs> of the, the two-person circle. Um, <laughs> because, because, I mean, obviously Kyrie is a, is a great great offense player certainly and I think a lot of people would say he's a great player if not a very very good player um, someone that the Nets were happy to have both him and Durant and now you bring on this third offensive star who I mean quite frankly after two games we've, and this is my thought is that I think two of those three gives you enough offense to begin with to where you probably don't need a third um, I do think it has incredible benefits for the other guys that are on the court with them um, I think all three of these guys are, are good passers, particularly Harden, who I think might be, um, you know, I have a couple of friends in the industry that were saying, and I was kind of surprised they didn't keep this to themselves. You know, they're like, man, I knew James Harden was an all-time great passer, but he's a great passer. It's like, well, that's what all-time great means. And I think that people have just gotten so used to the idea that, again, Harden is boring or I don't want to watch him or I don't like the style of play. Um, I wrote a story several years ago about the fact that he and LeBron are probably the best two passers in the game. When you look at how far 
they're throwing their passes and how accurate and how hard they're throwing the passes. Um, but I do wonder a little bit, there is such a gap in terms of just how great I think Durant is and how great he's been at his peak and how great Harden has been at his peak, which has been the last few years and Irving where these are like all NBA guys year in, year out. And then you've got Irving who's done that once or maybe twice. And obviously has had his big moments and has, has helped win a title, a big role in that. Um, but there's still a pretty sizable gap between those two and then, and then Irving. So I am interested to see it. I mean, it's going to make them more impossible to guard. I think Joe Harris and Landry Shamit are going to have a field day as open shooters. Uh, it's crazy to think they have maybe a top five or ten shooter in the league aside those three. And I think it's exactly the sort of offense you need. Um, but, you know, whether ego comes into play, whether jealousy comes into play, you have plays we've already seen a couple where James Harden kind of just dominates a possession and Kyrie is, is, is capable of doing the same thing. Um, Durant a little bit less so, but it'll be interesting to see who has the ball in their hands for the lion's share of the time. I think Durant can deal with being the third guy. I just don't know if the, you know, how Harden will deal with that. And I really don't know how Irving will deal with it, but offensively they should be great if they don't kind of self-sabotage themselves. So I want to switch gears real quick, just to talk about, about the team that James Harden left. You guys wrote a great piece last week about, about Houston's legacy, leaving aside kind of the way it ended. (laughs) It didn't end great there, but over Harden's eight full seasons in, in Houston, what what was his legacy there? What will we take away from that Rockets period? Well, one of the big things is probably just the way, the role that they took in reshaping how the game is played. And one of the things that we dug into was just looking at what the NBA looked like in terms of three-point shooting, particularly before Harden arrived. Uh, it, before his first year with the Rockets, no team had ever taken more than 35% of their shots from three-point land. That was the 2010 Magic uh, that did that. Uh, and Houston pretty much was immediately there in Harden's first season. They broke that record a couple years later. Then they took 45% of their shots from three for the first time in 2016. And then finally cracked the 50% barrier, which really nobody had even really thought possible in the mid to late 2000s. And they did that uh, each of his three final seasons in uh, full seasons in Houston. And uh, as that was happening, we've also seen the league average for threes uh, go up massively over that time. Uh, And so I think that in a lot of ways, the legacy of that team will be uh, just the way that they the role that they played in changing people's attitudes toward like, is it really viable to build an offense where half of your shots are threes? Well, not only was it viable for them, they were the best offense in basketball for um, a couple seasons and had one of the best um, three-year runs of any offense in the history of the NBA uh, with Harden leading the way and them taking so many threes. So they proved that not only could you do it as sort of like a thought experiment, but also you could build one of the best offenses ever around that strategy. Yeah, I <laughs> I don't think we ended up using the phrase, but as Neil and I wrote the story, um, <laughs> the example that I laid out was the Rockets were kind of like the Todd Marinovich um, experiment through basketball as far as what if we just set up this environment where all you could do 
was take the optimal shot, the optimal. So obviously they had better results than Todd Marinovich did. Um, but just looking at the situation, um, you know, I think it, it even goes outside of that, you know, because to me, so much of the Rockets and why they were so unique was because of how they were built, that it was always risky that they were going to play through kind of the idea of one star. And then obviously they added people and added a lot of people, added a lot of star players, Dwight Howard. Um, they obviously brought in Chris Paul and then there was Russell Westbrook, but obviously kind of as a secondary player to James Harden. And we're going to just have Harden isolate for long stretches of the game, kind of the entire game, brought in a coach that kind of helped him do that, um, experimented with the positional stuff because James Harden had not really been a point guard. Prior to that, they moved him to point guard and kind of a, a big oversized point guard. Um, doing that, we watched the team kind of remake itself almost annually around Harden and maybe his second star. We watched them, I, you know, the stat that we had in our story was that there were only a handful of teams that had had 100 players on their roster uh, since whatever, whenever Harden got there in 2013 or whatever. And basically all those teams were teams that have kind of blown up their roster entirely at one point or another, the Cavs, um, the Sixers, the Bucks at one point before Giannis kind of became who he was. And all those teams more or less have just been near the bottom of the NBA and wins. And then you've got the Rockets who were like a hundred percentage points better than everybody else over that span. And so it basically showed you, as long as they have Harden and that star power, it kind of didn't matter what else was going on. You know, they kind of, in a way, they birthed the process era Sixers, just as far as the different stuff that they were trying and kind of how dedicated they were going to be to the idea of a process. So there are so many different pieces of that legacy as it relates to Harden, as it relates to Daryl Morey. Um, a lot of people will not miss them, um, but I think that obviously the Nets and the way that James Harden will play within the Nets has has the ability to kind of shed the notion of hating the way he plays. Because I think people are seeing now that he was playing that way in part because that was exactly how the Rockets wanted him to play. Yeah, I mean, what, having watched the Nets-Bucks game last night, man, that was that was some fun basketball to watch. I, it, was, it was a fun game. And if that's the outcome of all of that, I mean, okay, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine with me. Yeah, and it's a little sad that, um, you know, if Harden does go on to win the championship, that's something that the Rockets were never able to accomplish. And they came so close so many times, particularly in that one game seven in which they missed 27 straight threes. Uh, and, and that, I think, is part of the legacy also that you really can't avoid is probably we would have if they had won the championship, we would have led with that when you asked about what their legacy was. Um, but in some ways, I maybe it makes them more interesting, the fact that they didn't, because I do think that teams that are built and play in like a really unique way and reshape the way that other uh, teams think about things but don't win are often like we carve out a special place in history for those teams and they almost become sort of like mythical, uh, almost for not winning. All right. Well, no doubt we will be seeing and hearing much more from James Harden in the weeks to come, but we can end this here for now. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. It was great to have you. It's good to talk with you guys, too. Thanks for having me on. We'll be back in a moment for our Rabbit Hole of the Week. 
At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. And this week, the rabbit hole is mine. So we've talked before on the show about free agency in the NBA and how the drama of the player movement might even eclipse the drama of what's happening on the court. That drama has often been missing, though, in the WNBA. Historically, low player pay, even for superstars, meant that there just wasn't a lot to negotiate for when it came time for free agency. And teams could repeatedly use a sort of franchise tag on their superstars who would otherwise be unrestricted free agents, meaning that the team had exclusive negotiating rights with those players. So free agency would would usually pass with maybe a few interesting names, but it seemed to be characterized by a lot of re-signings, which can be fine for a fan of a successful franchise, less fine for fans who want their teams to switch things up, and even less fine for players who would like to change jobs. This all changed last year. The new WNBA collective bargaining agreement signed a year ago dramatically increased the salary cap. It had been $996,000 per team in 2019, and it it rose by just over 30% to $1.3 million in 2020. The maximum amount for Supermax salaries rose by $100,000, and that core franchise designation tag can be used less now. It had a limit of four times in a player's career. That was reduced to three times for last year and this year, and starting in 2022, it will only be able to be used twice. So what this meant for last year was an unprecedented flurry of activity. In 2019, only a handful of free agents signed with new teams, and none of them were big names. Really, it was like five or six players. In 2020, more than a dozen free agents signed with new teams, including such stars as Angel McCautry, Christy Tolliver, and Simone Augustus. Several other stars essentially demanded trades during the period, including Dewana Bonner, Skylar Diggins-Smith, and Tina Charles. So all-stars were suddenly forming super teams across the country, though some of that was obviously cut off by COVID-19 and and players opting out of the season. This year's free agency period has just started. Teams had to make their qualifying offers by last Friday, and players can negotiate right now and can then sign contracts starting on February 1st. Salaries aren't expected to go up as much this year as they did last year, since while the salary cap did go up to $1.139 million, it wasn't nearly as big of a bump as last year. But still, the salaries that were instituted last year uh, figure to affect the, the bigger name players this year. So who are those big free agent names? Well, that core designation I mentioned earlier can still be used, though it was placed on only three players. Liz Cambage of the Las Vegas Aces, Neka Ogumage of the Los Angeles Sparks, and Natasha Howard of the Seattle Storm. The teams there have exclusive negotiating rights, but if that doesn't work out, we could see a trade, as we did last year with Skylar Diggins-Smith and Tina Charles. There is also a lot of star power in the rest of the unrestricted free agent field, made up of players with at least five years of service or players who have been cut and passed through waivers. So the unrestricted free agents include Candace Parker, Chelsea Gray, Diana Taurasi, Sue Bird, Kayla McBride, Alicia Clark, Emma Miesemann, Daniel Robinson, Alyssa Thomas, Jasmine Thomas. The list is impressive. 41 players in all. There are also nine restricted free agents, players with four years of service, 
who can sign with other teams, but their original teams are given the option to match any offer. And players who aren't on contract and have three or fewer years of service are considered reserved, and they can only negotiate with their most recent team until they're released by that team. One other category of player will be very interesting this year, and that's the players whose contracts expired while they had opted out of the 2020 season. Those players can only negotiate with their previous teams, and they include such big names as Maya Moore, Shanae Gumuke, Natasha Cloud, and Renee Montgomery. So right now, I'm just waiting to see where these players end up and what storylines will emerge. I'm so interested to see if Liz Cambage does stay in Vegas, how she and um, Asia Wilson could play together again after Wilson's MVP year. Los Angeles could be a powerhouse this year if they manage to keep all their stars. I'm not sure they can under the salary cap, but I imagine they'll try. And a bunch of other teams are undoubtedly looking for that final piece to put them over the top, which really does seem possible now for teams to make those kinds of moves under this um, version of the CBA. So what's clear in the second year of the new CBA is that the WNBA is adding some of that drama that we appreciate in the NBA, too. I think that's a really good thing for the sport. It keeps the conversation going about the WNBA outside of the season itself, which is also what we see in the NBA that, you know, the 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 season really never ends. It's just a different kind of drama, um, which I like. I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how it, it does seem like this would be bad for competitive balance, but good for creating super team storylines, which uh, people have sort of decried in the NBA. But also it's coincide. This era of the NBA super team has coincided with so much interest in the NBA. So it does seem like a good business move for the WNBA. And it's very interesting how like competitive balance and what's good for business are not the same thing and in fact can often be at odds with each other even though as fans we sort of think like more competitive balance is always good but that's not uh, in practice that's almost never true at least from the league's perspective well, and I wonder too with the WNBA being so small I mean there's only t there's only 12 teams so there's only you know 144 roster spots there are so many talented women who do not get jobs in the WNBA so even even with some super teams, there are still there are still ways that other teams can can work in that. You know, in the NBA, you need a star to win. That's how it's played out lately. In the WNBA, I wonder, you know, if there are some other options there for the the teams that are not, you know, getting these these superstars. I mean, and then you look at like um you know, the, the Liberty, which the New York Liberty were, were, were bad last year. Um, but they had the last year's number one draft pick and Sabrina Ionescu. They are going to pick first this year too. So there are, are still those other ways to build teams, um, which I think having all the options is what makes it kind of fun, right? You can build through free agency or you can build through the draft um, or you can sign, you know, a, a lot of players who, you know, international players and players who may not be getting as much of a look here um, because of the few roster spots. Are there good players coming out in this draft or, or are most, you know, staying in college using the eligibility with the sort of lost season a That's year ago? That's a good question. I think it's going to be really, I mean, a lot will depend on the tournament, obviously. Um, I think it'll be really, it, it's, it's hard now to tell who's going to stay in and who isn't. 
um and you know consensus the consensus picks there are a little bit all over the place still but it'll be great to hopefully have a march madness to lead into that draft um and and actually be able to kind of engage with the players um more uh in their college careers right leading into their pro careers which we were sort of deprived of last year all right well yep so we'll we'll we have a couple weeks now of free agency to see where all these players end up and then and then start building our storylines when we know where everyone will be Okay, that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Chris, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.